Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, June 29th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Adam Clark. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Protests rock Paris after a teen is killed by police. A report estimates $200 billion in U.S. COVID aid funds were stolen. At least 10 are killed in Russian missile strikes on Donetsk. Two Russian warships are detected near Taiwan's coast. Trump countersues writer E. Jean Carroll for defamation. A BBC report exposes the prevalence of AI child sex abuse images. Gymnastic star Simone Biles will return to competing. Deforestation is found to be increasing despite global pledges. A climped painting sets a European auction record. And South Koreans become younger under a new age-counting law. Our top story coming from Paris as protests ensue after police kill a teen at a traffic stop. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Independent, France 24, ABC News, CNN, and Al Jazeera. Violent riots broke out Tuesday night in the suburbs of Paris after police shot and killed a 17-year-old named Nail M after he failed to stop when police asked. The Nanterre police say they shot because Nail was driving his car towards them, though this has been disputed. The teenager was driving a rental car when police tried to pull him over. However, despite police attempts, including one officer pointing his gun, Nail continued to drive off, prompting an officer to fire at point-blank range. Emergency services tried to resuscitate him, but it was too late. Despite claims that he was driving toward the officers, videos posted to social media appear to show the two policemen standing at the side of the stopped vehicle, with one pointing his gun. The victim's lawyers say they will file an additional claim against the officers for alleged false testimony. In response to the shooting, protesters set fire to dozens of vehicles and buildings, including a town hall 25 miles away in Monté-la-Jolais. French Interior Minister Gérald Darmanin condemned the violence as 31 were arrested in the riots that injured 25 policemen and burned 40 cars. The officer who shot Nail is in custody and will face another 24 hours of questioning by prosecutors. As national police investigate the killing, an additional 2,000 officers were deployed Wednesday. Tuesday's shooting comes as traffic stop fatalities are reportedly on the rise in France with a record 13 people shot by police in such circumstances last year. Eric, thank you for laying out the facts on our first story. I'm going to start our first round of narrative spins with a left narrative provided by The Guardian. The unforgivable killing of an unarmed teenager shows a state of the police in France. Police killings are inexcusable, but it's even more problematic that the majority of people killed at traffic stops are people of color. People are taking to the streets because they see the injustice going on around them and cannot stand idly by any longer. French police must be reformed, and the officer who killed Nail must be charged. We counter that with a right narrative coming from B. Voltaire. While any death at the hands of police is very troubling, it's also important to address the factors as to why more people are being shot at traffic stops. The fact is that France is seeing an exponential rise in refusals to comply with police and subsequently an increase in the risk of harm to law enforcement. The establishment has a narrative to maintain, but we must examine every aspect of a problem in order to fix it. 
got to be video games. It's got to be. It's, there's no other answer. Yeah. It's got to be video yeah. games. Yeah, totally. This sarcastic report brought to us by... <laughs> Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org forward slash pod. Take a quick survey and tell us what you think. Now back to the news. A recent U.S. report shows that potentially $200 billion were stolen out of COVID aid funds. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Associated Press, Fox News, and PBS NewsHour. A report from the Inspector General of the U.S. Small Business Administration, or the SBA, estimates that $200 billion out of the agency's $1.2 trillion in COVID relief funds dispersed through the Economic Injury Disaster Loan, or the EIDL, and Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP, were misappropriated. The Inspector General claims that 17% of the funds went to, quote, potentially fraudulent actors, with $64 billion in PPP and $136 billion in EIDL funds being stolen. The report alleges that usual safeguards against fraud were weakened or removed during the pandemic in an effort to disperse the funds quickly, which attracted an overwhelming number of fraudsters. A senior SBA official disputed the findings in an addendum to the report, saying they significantly overestimated fraud at the agency. An Associated Press report estimated pandemic aid fraud totaled $280 billion, mostly from SBA programs, while the agency pegs EIDL fraud at around $28 billion. In explaining the methodology of the report, the SBA Inspector General said it utilizes investigative casework, prior Inspector General reporting, and cutting-edge data to identify suspected fraud. Federal agencies are involved in 570 investigations into pandemic fraud and misappropriation, with at least $30 billion being seized or returned to the SBA. SBA Inspector General Hannibal Mike Ware is set to testify in front of Congress in July regarding his report. Thank you, Adam, for those facts. Our first spin is a Republican narrative coming from the Wall Street Journal. The scope and scale of COVID relief fraud may never be truly known, as the government irresponsibly gave out fistfuls of taxpayer money to those that did not deserve it. The government has had long-standing issues with benefit fraud, as this wastefulness adds to the U.S.'s gargantuan national debt. While Democrats have tried to brush aside the extent of the mismanagement, the American people deserve to know what went wrong. That's going to be followed up with a Democratic narrative provided by Washington Post. The government tried to disperse COVID funds to those that needed them the most, which is what happened to the vast majority of the funds provided. It was the Trump administration that insisted on a policy of retroactive enforcement for inevitable instances of fraud, with Biden adding more stringent oversight measures when he entered office. We need to use the lessons from COVID to build a better emergency relief system, not as an excuse to tear it apart. What are you doing with all your COVID money? Um, they came for it. Oh, they they showed they showed up at my door. You know, I, I had to go up into my attic and like get, get all the big plastic bags of money I'd stashed away into the. Oh into yeah, the wall. next to all your uh, your classified documents boxes. Yeah, yeah. Well, they didn't get those. They didn't get those. <laughs> okay. I'm saving those for my library. <laughs> I got yeah, you. So okay. we're good. We're good there. Well, that's too bad. Well, if you need if you need something, let me know. I still have I, my I COVID pre- money. I appreciate the support. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh, you shouldn't have said that on the air. I'm gonna, now you just made me an accessory. I'm going to have to oh, let them no. know that there's more money. <laughs> okay. Eric, you big, you, Eric, you big dummy. Oh, what am I thinking? At least 10 are killed in Russian missile strikes on Donetsk. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, The Guardian, CNN, Atlas News, and Ukrainska Pravda. At least 10 civilians were killed and upwards of 60 people were injured after Russian missile strikes targeted the Donetsk city of Kramatorsk late on Tuesday. Ukrainian officials said that two Russian Iskender missiles hit a popular pizza restaurant that was busy with diners at the time of the strikes. Pavlo Kirilenko, Ukraine's governor of the Donetsk region, said, quote, two rockets were fired at a food establishment in the center of the city where there were a great number of civilians. The attack also damaged 18 multi-story buildings, 65 houses, five schools, two kindergartens, a shopping center, an administrative building, and a recreational building, Kirilenko said. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov, meanwhile, insisted that Russia, quote, does not strike at civilian infrastructure and that strikes are carried out only on objects that are connected with military infrastructure. Separately, Russia's defense ministry said the attack on Kramatorsk, which lies in Ukrainian-held territory just over 22 miles or 35 kilometers northwest of Bakhmut, targeted Ukraine's 56th Motorized Infantry Brigade. Footage from the aftermath of the strikes on social media appeared to confirm the presence of military casualties, as well as foreign mercenaries among the rubble. Meanwhile, the Security Service of Ukraine, or SSU, on Wednesday said it had arrested a local man from Kramatorsk, accusing him of taking videos of the strike location before sending the footage onto Russian intelligence services. In a statement, Vasil Maliuk, head of the SSU, said the Russian agent will be held accountable in a Ukrainian court. Thank you, Eric. We're going to start off with an anti-Russia narrative provided by The Guardian. In this latest attack, Russia has continued its long trend of deliberately targeting civilians in order to inflict the maximum amount of terror on Ukraine. Moscow must be defeated and one day be held accountable for all these crimes. The pro-Russian narrative is coming from TASS. Any allegation that Russia deliberately targets civilians and attacks is categorically untrue. Russia only strikes military targets, and the attack in question struck Ukraine's 56th Motorized Infantry Brigade. And occasionally we get statistics-based nerd narratives from our friends at the Metaculous Prediction community. They have an opinion on this story, and they think that there's a 3% chance Ukraine will receive a security guarantee from another country before 2024. Continuing with news regarding Russia, two Russian warships were detected near the Taiwanese coast. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNA, Focus Taiwan, The Moscow Times, Nakai Asia, Al Jazeera, and Stars and Stripes. Taiwan's Ministry of National Defense on Tuesday announced a rare detection of two Russian frigates sailing north at 11 p.m. in waters off the island's east coast. It was not detailed how far offshore the warships were. The military closely monitored the passage of the warships with the use of joint intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance methods, deploying aircraft and ships before they left Taiwan's response area southeast of Suao. This comes as Russia's state-run Intrafax news agency reported that warships from the Russian Navy Pacific Fleet crossed the South China Sea and entered the Philippine Sea on Tuesday 
performing exercises such as simulating naval battle to repel a missile attack from the sea. Meanwhile, Taipei detected eight Chinese military aircraft and six naval ships around the island between Monday 6 a.m. and Tuesday 6 a.m., including three Sukhoi Su-30 combat jets allegedly flying across the Taiwan Strait median line. The self-ruling island, which has joined the U.S., as well as its neighbors Japan and South Korea, in imposing sanctions on Russia amid the Ukraine war, reports near-daily presence of Chinese vessels and aircraft around the territory which Beijing claims as its own. Though the PRC has not openly endorsed Russia's actions in Ukraine, Beijing and Moscow remain close allies and regularly coordinate military exercises together. Adam, thank you for laying out the facts. Our first spin is a pro-establishment narrative, and it's coming from Taipei Times. The unusual presence of Russian warships near Taiwan is very concerning, as the Kremlin has acted in the interests of Beijing to get diplomatic cover and continue the conspiracy of aggression and expansion. Authoritarian countries have deepened ties since Putin ordered the invasion of Ukraine last year, with Moscow reaffirming its support for Chinese expansionism. And TASS has provided us with an establishment critical narrative. Given that the Sino-Russia alliance offers a constructive multipolar alternative to Western global dominance, it is no surprise that the U.S. and its puppet allies are resorting to bellicose words and deeds in a last-ditch effort to prevent this new geopolitical era. Under such circumstances, the Ukraine crisis, the Taiwan issue, and human rights are being politicized by the West to slander both Beijing and Moscow. We have a nerd narrative for this story coming from Metaculous Prediction Community. They say there's a 15% chance that the Republic of China, or Taiwan, will declare independence by 2035. Donald Trump sues E. Jean Carroll for defamation. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Hill, BBC News, Independent, Reuters, and Forbes. On Tuesday, Donald Trump filed a defamation countersuit against E. Jean Carroll, a month after a jury found the former U.S. president liable for sexual assault and defamation against the author. The case refers to comments made by Carroll a day after the jury's verdict in May on CNN. Carroll stated, quote, oh, yes, he did, when questioned over whether Trump had raped her in the 1990s, despite the New York civil jury finding that he had sexually abused but not raped Carroll. The claim, filed in federal court in Manhattan, argues that Trump has faced, quote, significant harm to his reputation from Carroll's comments, which have caused an inordinate amount of damage sustained. Since the jury's ruling last month, Carroll herself has also amended her original defamation lawsuit against the former president to include comments Trump made following the trial during a town hall forum on CNN. Carroll is seeking a further $10 million dollars in addition to the $5 million she was awarded in May. Trump's legal team is seeking compensatory and punitive damages against Carroll, as well as demanding that the author retract her comments on the matter. Trump has also filed an appeal against the jury's verdict last month. Thank you, Eric. We're going to start off with a pro-Trump narrative provided by RSBN. Trump has maintained his innocence throughout Carroll's persistent claims, and the former president is now fighting back with his own legal complaints. There's no clear evidence of sexual abuse, let alone rape, and Trump is entitled to defend his reputation against the author's questionable claims. The Daily Beast brings us the anti-Trump narrative. Since Trump was on the losing side of the jury's verdict, 
the former president has dramatically and consistently lashed out to no avail. And this is just his latest ploy to escape accountability. Carroll has continued to stand firm against Trump's intimidation, with a jury rightly finding him to be a sexual criminal, a mark that will forever taint his legacy. A recent report has exposed illegal trade in AI child sex abuse images. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Evening Standard, and Metro. A BBC report published Wednesday has found that pedophiles are using artificial intelligence tools to create and sell photorealistic images of child sex abuse, with buyers accessing the material via paid subscription services such as U.S.-based platform Patreon. The creators of the material reportedly use software called Stable Diffusion, a popular AI tool used among artists that makes images from simple text instructions by analyzing pictures found online. A separate report has also found the software MidJourney was being used. The content is also reportedly shared on the Japanese social media platform Pixiv. And because the website is hosted in Japan, where sharing sexualized cartoons and drawings of children is allowed, creators share the content using hashtags and groups. Many creators will use Pixiv to post links to their Patreon accounts, on which they offer AI-generated child abuse for different prices depending on the content requested. The BBC found one account charged $8.30 per month for what it called, quote, exclusive uncensored art. It is illegal in the UK to take, create, share, or possess both indecent images and pseudo-photographs of people under 18. Pixiv said it has already banned such AI-generated content, and Patreon emphasized its zero-tolerance policy against depicting minors in a sexual manner. Investigative journalist Octavia Sheepshanks said creators are producing images with the aim to do at least 1,000 images a month, as law enforcement will likely get bogged down trying to distinguish between real and AI victims. The UK's lead officer on child safeguarding, Ian Critchley, added that it could also lead pedophiles down a path toward finding images of real victims. Adam, thank you for the facts of this story. The first spin is Narrative A, coming from Washington Post. The rapidly growing industry of AI-generated child porn is a serious threat to society that needs to be tackled. Not only do these pedophiles spawn AI images by using footage of real victims, but the overwhelming amount of novel content makes it harder for police to distinguish between real and fake. Although companies understandably want to keep open source code to promote artistic creativity, that may not be worth contributing to the evil child porn industry. We're going to follow that up with a narrative B provided by The Conversation. AI depictions of minors do pose serious concerns on many fronts but they can also help law enforcement catch pedophiles before any real children are hurt. For example, police created a fake young girl to combat child webcam sex trafficking. Thousands of men around the world were then exposed to paying for her content. Hopefully, as is underway in Australia, individual law enforcement agencies can create their own AI to find and arrest more predators. In our next story, star gymnast Simone Biles is set to return to competition. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, The Telegraph, Forbes, and NBC. 
On Wednesday, USA Gymnastics announced that seven-time Olympic medalist and 2016 Rio de Janeiro Olympics champion Simone Biles would participate in her first competition in two years at the U.S. Classic in August. After removing herself from multiple events and taking time off to focus on her mental health, she will compete in the women's field for the single-day event on August 5th at Now Arena in Hoffman Estates near Chicago. Though it's unknown whether she's aiming for a spot at the 2024 Paris Olympics, the U.S. Classic is a qualifier for nationals, which, alongside the Olympic trials, are how Olympic athletes are selected. She will compete against Jade Carey, Sky Blakely, Jordan Childs, and Leanne Wong. Since the 2020 Olympics, during which she dropped out after enduring the twisties, where gymnasts lose spatial awareness while conducting complicated jumps, she has spoken out on mental health and the alleged sexual abuse she endured at the hands of sports doctor Larry Nasser. She also has since married NFL player Jonathan Owens. Alongside Shannon Miller, the 26-year-old has the most Olympic medals won by an American gymnast. She's also the most decorated gymnast in the history of the Gymnastics World Championships, with 25 medals. Another gymnast who took a break and returned was Nasia Luikan, who left after the 2009 U.S. Championships before returning for an Olympic run in 2012 but didn't qualify. The last U.S. gymnast to make three Olympic teams was Dominique Dawes in 2000. All right, Eric, we've got sporting news providing us with a narrative A. Even despite having to drop out of the Tokyo Games due to physical and mental health reasons, Simone Biles is the greatest gymnast in history. She has shown bravery on and off the mat, and this latest comeback will only further solidify her legendary status in the history books. Narrative B comes from The Federalist. Despite claims to the contrary, Biles, by her own admission, dropped out of the Tokyo Olympics to work on her mindfulness. Biles is a brilliant gymnast, no doubt, but to celebrate her as the greatest of all time disregards the fact that she left her teammates high and dry when they needed her most. And the Nerds of Metaculous have an opinion on this story. They think there's a 50% chance that the U.S. will win at least 115 medals at the Paris Olympics in 2024. In a recent report, deforestation has jumped up 10% last year, despite global pledges. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Yahoo News, Le Monde, Nasdaq, Taipei Times, BBC, and CNN. Despite pledges made at the COP26 UN Climate Conference in Glasgow in 2021 to end and reverse deforestation by 2030, the destruction of the world's rainforest continues, according to a new study by the World Resources Institute, or the WRI, published Tuesday, which cite University of Maryland data. Last year, the world lost 4.1 million hectares, around 16,000 square miles, of primary rainforest, about the size of Switzerland, giving rise to 2.7 billion tons of carbon dioxide, which corresponds roughly to the annual emissions of India. In total, the world emitted 43 billion tons of greenhouse gases. According to the WRI, the loss of tropical forest in 2022 surpassed 2021 levels, with Brazil making up more than 40% of all losses. After Brazil, the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Bolivia accounted for the greatest losses, while Indonesia and Malaysia saw deforestation kept at a record low, largely thanks to tight policies, such as a ban on new licenses in primary forests and peatlands. According to scientists, 
burning tropical forests releases stored carbon into the atmosphere, driving up global temperatures, and any decrease in forest volume is particularly concerning as the ecosystems can't easily be replaced by planting trees elsewhere. Scientists have further cautioned that unless action is taken soon, the Amazon could transform into a grassy savanna, compromising the world's ability to tackle climate change. Adam, thanks for the facts of that story. Narrative A is our first spin, and it's coming from Axios. We're headed in the wrong direction. The world's tropical rainforests are in jeopardy from logging due to agricultural expansion and cattle grazing. The rainforests must be protected because they are a vast terrestrial carbon sink, and if they disappear, they will have an enormous negative impact on climate change and biodiversity. Clearly, voluntary commitments aren't sufficient to keep rainforests intact. We must take legislative action to protect them. That's followed up with a Narrative B dialogue provided by Euronews. Although deforestation indeed contributes to climate change, some scientists have argued that there are two factors that aren't being acknowledged, the significance of location and something known as the albedo effect, which is the process in which forests retain heat. Depending on the area, deforestation could either warm the planet or potentially cause a cooling effect. More research is undoubtedly required. We have a nerd narrative for this story from the Metaculous Prediction community. They say there's an 85% chance there will be at least 2 degrees Celsius of global warming by the year 2100. In our next story, a Klimt painting sells for a record $108 million. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Al Jazeera, Sky News, BBC News, Independent, and Reuters. On Tuesday, Gustav Klimt's... Klimt, that's a weird name... On Tuesday, Gustav Klimt's painting titled Lady with a Fan became the most valuable work of art to ever be sold at a European auction, fetching $108 million, or 85.3 million pounds, at Sotheby's in London. Listed with a pre-sale estimate of $80 million, the portrait depicting an unidentified woman behind a China-influenced backdrop of dragons and lotuses beat the previous record of $104.3 million for Alberto Giacometti's Walking Man 1 at Sotheby's in 2010. Furthermore, the previous record for a painting sold at auction in Europe had sat at $80.4 million paid in 2008 for Claude Monet's Water Lily Pond. The painting was described at the auction as a masterpiece by an artist at the height of his powers and as part of the Japanism movement which centered upon Japanese influence within Western European artwork. The last portrait by Klimt before his death, auctioneer and chairman of Sotheby's Europe, Helena Newman, described the painting as an absolute testament to Klimt's artistic genius as well as a piece of work that captured the imagination of everyone who saw it. The painting was last sold nearly 30 years ago, being acquired for $11.6 million. Klimt's work was acquired by a Hong Kong art advisory firm on behalf of a collector based there, with the final bids taking place in £500,000 or $632,000 increments. Eric, thank you for the facts on that story. We've got a Narrative A to begin with, provided by the Art Newspaper. The auction of Klimt's portrait for a record fee is of little surprise. The piece made headlines when announced earlier this month and has received much fanfare. As stated by Sotheby's Helena Newman herself, the attention paid to the art world's Asian mark and consequent final price of a painting is without shock 
due to the work's Chinese and Japanese motifs. Narrative B comes from Art News. Whilst May's slow auctioneering in New York led to many believing that we were witnessing a market correction, London's auctions may suggest some positives in the market. Exceeding pre-sale low estimates over Sotheby's two-day lot, the sale of Klimt, amongst others, for record prices is a sign of life in the art world that many did not expect. How does that painting look above your uh, dining room table? It it it's so looks so well right up against the Velvet Elvis. Oh, you put it next to the Velvet Elvis? Oh, I yeah. did. I did. Unfortunately, unfortunately, when I put the black light on, it just totally washes out the Klimt painting. I would put the Klimt in a closet. I was thinking like I was going to ironically put it in the restroom because it's it's the lady with fan, and it's like she's you know oh, fan, fanning the smell away from her nose. Man, you are so smart. <laughs> You're so decor savvy. And, you know, I can't believe you had to take out a second mortgage just to get that thing. It was worth it. My, my kids can survive on, on uh, bread and cheese for, you know, for three more months. Absolutely. In our final story today, South Koreans are becoming younger under a new age-counting law. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBC, Reuters, USA Today, Guardian, and BBC News. South Koreans have become a year or two younger as new laws that require using only the international method of calculating age took effect on Wednesday, replacing the country's traditional age-counting method. Under the traditional age-counting system, children are considered to be a year old at birth, with an additional year added to their age every January 1st. Since the early 1960s, the country has used the international norm of calculating the age at birth as zero and adding a year on every birthday for medical and legal documents. But the traditional system was still used on everything else and was the age system most commonly used in South Koreans' lives. South Korean President Yoon Suk-yul made scrapping the traditional age-counting system a campaign pledge last year, calling it confusing and a drain on the economy citing previous legal disputes over insurance claims and eligibility for government social welfare programs. The change will not disallow those who were previously of age to legally buy cigarettes or alcohol, change the year in which they start school, or become eligible for up to 21 months of national service, a legal requirement for all able-bodied men. Instead, a third system that governs those areas of life on a yearly basis will remain in place. The traditional age-counting methods were also previously used by other Eastern Asian countries, but most have now dropped them. Japan approved the international system for age-counting in 1950, while North Korea adopted the international system in the 1980s. Adam, thanks for the facts. Our first spin is Narrative A coming from BBC News. As a modern, technologically advanced nation, it's about time South Korea got rid of this relic of the past. Under the old system, a baby born on December 31st would be two days old in an international system and two years old in South Korea the following day. It's about time that Seoul caught up, even if that means counting backward. And we're going to wrap things up with a narrative B provided by Al Jazeera. While the headlines may say that South Korea is adopting the international age counting system, that's not entirely true. A third system called Year Age will still exist for eligibility for military service, school year, and drinking age. While South Korea may be abandoning one age-counting system, it has still not entirely adopted the international norm yet. 
this is totally makes sense now why um, all the Asian countries have the oldest people. Have you ever noticed that? So like all the oldest, you know, they're like the longest. That's true. Longest living human. He's 109. That's because they've got this crazy age counting system going on. Yeah. We we're calling them out. The word is out. The fix is in. The jink is up. The jig is up. The dog has barked. Yep. The fat lady is singing and they can smell the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Thursday, June 29th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.